Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. For me growing up, it was, oh, 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 it's the time join a morning show. Because, you know, my mom was a school teacher, so we was up early, early. So I was listening to Tom Joyner. And then, uh, you know, Z93 played such a big role in my life because, you know, their original morning show that I remember was The Breakfast Club, Baby J and Tessa, Tessa Spencer. My guest today is someone I've wanted to interview for a long time because of what he's meant over the last decade to the culture. Black culture, hip-hop culture, internet culture, youth culture, all the cultures, you name it. But if I'm being completely honest, the real reason I wanted to sit down and talk to Charlemagne the God is to see if some of his confidence can rub off on me. Most of my career, I've been terrified to bring my full self to work. Out of fear of rejection or fear that I wouldn't be enough, I don't know, I'm working through it with my therapist. But what I admire about Charlemagne is that he seems to not care at all about being rejected by his peers, his co-workers, his audience, anyone. And that confidence has led to some of the most impactful and sometimes controversial interviews over the last decade as co-host of one of the most popular radio shows of all time, The Breakfast Club. Charlemagne made time to sit down with me in New York City to discuss all of this, plus his upbringing, parenting, and the criticisms that have come with his success and more. This is Started from the Bottom, hard-earned success stories from people like us. First time I ever saw you was, it was you on the Wendy Williams radio show, yep. going toe-to-toe with Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like 2007. <laughs> yep, yep. It was one of the most amazing things ever. Yep. And even though uh, you kind of got... Uh, I don't know. I feel like Andrew kind of uh, put it on you that day. It was the, it was the way they edited it too, but it was like, yeah, I, I I had some I had some good ones, but they didn't put all of them in. They put the one about me calling him a fat Fonzie. But. That's right. Looking back, you actually did a lot better than I remember yeah, at the yeah, time. Yeah, but I was yeah. like, dang, like like Andrew, like still got it. I remember being like, oh man. But then that kind of put uh, you on my radar. And then I remember when the Breakfast Club came, I was like, oh, it makes sense. Like this mm-hmm. guy clearly clearly had it. But yeah, I want to run through your radio trajectory. But first, I, I thought it'd be good to start with growing up in Monk's Corner, South Carolina. Um, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot more lately, only because, like, you know, when I'm in therapy, I'm doing, like, a lot of um, inner child work, mm. you know? Because I feel like a lot of the issues that you deal with as an adult, most of them directly connect to something that happened in your childhood. Yeah. And so I've been thinking about, like, what was that upbringing like growing up in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, and the the, the word I've come to realize um, that is associated with that that upbringing is simple. You know, Monk's Corner, when I was young, created a sense of ease in my life that I feel like really helped me growing up because I didn't move too fast and I didn't move too slow. That still is a big, big part of me. So when, like, you know, that anxiety that I've been feeling my whole life sets in. I feel like, okay, I might be moving too fast, but then I don't want to move too slow. But then it's just a certain ease, like like Baby Bear's porridge. It's just, it's a just right 
level of ease That's that fun. growing up in Monk's Corner gave me that I, I tend to tap into whenever like things get really hectic. You, you mentioned the, some of the anxiety that you, you, you have. When did that start? Oh, Since yeah. early? Yeah, as long as I know. I mean, the first panic attack I remember having was first grade. My mom dropping me off. Like I can feel it right now. My mom dropping me off first grade, first day of first grade. And like, I just cried uncontrollably. Like, like I just felt like abandoned, lost, and just scared. Like that, that, that same, you know, unexplainable feeling of fear and panic and worry. And I think my mom even says that I might've cried for like the first week. I don't remember the first week. I remember that one particular day, but it's like, yeah, that's the first time I remember ever having like a panic attack. And I had them throughout my life. Like I've been going to the emergency room thinking that I'm having a heart, having attack. A heart attack, you know, <laughs> yeah. thinking that I'm dying, yeah. you know, and then you get yeah. there and the doctor's like, oh, did you have an energy drink today? And you're like, oh, I did drink a Red Bull earlier. And it's like, oh, that's probably why your heart is doing that. Man, uh, hey, that's the worst feeling. You know, so it wasn't until 2010 that a doctor actually said to me, it sounds like you have anxiety. He was literally was like, it sounds like you had a panic attack, the things that you're describing. And he was like, has this happened to you before? And I'm like, all the time. And, you know, he asked me, was I stressed out about anything? And I'm like, hell yeah. Because at the time I had just been fired for the fourth time from radio and I'm back living at home with my mom at like 31, 32 years old. My daughter's like one or two. My wife is back living at home with her parents. You know what I mean? In Monk's Corner. So it's like, I was super stressed out collecting unemployment checks every week. So in my mind, all I had to do was get back in position, get me another job. And all of that would go away. And that wasn't the case. You know, I ended up getting the Breakfast Club gig and having the most success I've ever had in my life. And it felt like all of those issues I had historically dealt with were magnified times a hundred now. Yeah. You know? And so that's when I decided to like finally go get some help and like go to therapy. What do you think? Do you see that? Do you see that same anxiety in your kids? Yeah. Uh, you do. I haven't I haven't seen it show up as bad as mine was when I was that age. And I think the beauty of life now is not only do I have the language, I have the experience. So it's just like, and I, and I wish that, you know, somebody had put me in therapy when I was 13, 14. Now me, I definitely needed it because I was getting sexually abused at eight years old. I didn't realize that at the time. Right. I didn't even realize that was molestation until I was 20 something years old. Right. You know, at the time I just thought I was, Eight-year-old kid oh, getting lucky. Oh, the girl in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah, like, we, we would, yeah. All, we would all, we had a bunch of young men, we'd all be around having conversations about older women that we were messing with, you know, yeah. in the neighborhood. Like, we all thought we were lying, but clearly we all were, like, telling the truth in, in different ways, right? So, um, when I was 14, I definitely needed to unpack yeah. some of that. Do you think you would have had it at that age? Do you think the trajectory would have been the same? Like, do you think you would have been ended up in the streets the way you did? Uh, probably not. And the reason probably not is because, you know, even with the streets, right, it's like a lot of that is um, you, you trauma bond with people. Yeah. Because it's all a bunch of individuals that are missing something. And, like, we all want camaraderie. We all want family. We all want a crew. And it's just sometimes men, we trauma bond over bullshit. Yeah. You know, so we trauma bond sometimes over crime. You know, are we trauma bond over drugs? Are we trauma bond over alcohol? You know, but most of the time it's like, yo, we're all trauma bonding to do the wrong thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, let's go rob this, you know, individual, or go rob this store, or break into this house, or let's go, you know, figure out a way to get some, a pack to hustle. But it's like, what we're all lacking is like togetherness. Like everybody, we're all tribal and we all long for family right and right. i think that's what um that's what a lot of guys do when they when they click up in that way so i think for me i definitely was longing for like some type of family structure even though i grew up in a house with an older sister two younger brothers and a younger sister i was the second oldest my older sister's like 10 12 years older than me and my younger siblings are like 10 12 years younger than me so i was kind of, i didn't have You're on an island yeah, yeah exactly so i ended up kicking it with brothers and who are around my age and we all ended up doing a bunch of dirt and i don't even like to call it peer pressure because i don't believe there's anything i don't believe peer pressure exists i believe we all just want to be accepted you know what I'm saying? And and I think yeah. that when somebody pushes you to do something, you do it because you don't want to 
let them down. So it's a lot of people pleasing that goes at that with that. age, especially at that age, man. Yeah. Come and it on, stays man. with you though. Yeah. That people pleasing stays with you. Like that's something that I had to unpack in therapy. Like stop being a people pleaser. Like you know, because sometimes you'll be a people pleaser to your own detriment. Yeah. You know, I can't believe anyone's ever accused you of being a people pleaser, man. No, I think that a lot of that, man, that's because you seem you have strong opinions, yeah. not scared to voice them, even if it alienates you. Yeah, no, you're right. I've always been that way. Um, but no, there's there's been plenty of times in my life where I just wanted to be down. Mm. Like literally, I just yeah. wanted to be down. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be embraced. And yeah. you know, I can think about you know that time at that moment. Like I just wanted to be embraced by you know, my peers, you know? So that's why I started doing what a lot of my peers was doing, which was a lot of bullshit, you yeah. know what I mean? Because I wanted to be accepted. Some of that early stuff, couple couple drug cases. Um, the last one was you were around a shooting? That was or, the first one. That was the first one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First yeah, one was yeah, you were around the shooting. First one, I was in the back seat of a car and uh, my homeboy was in the front seat. Somebody was driving and we was in this neighborhood like like a, like a two neighborhoods over from where we are in Monk's Corner, two towns over rather from where we are in Monk's Corner, and we was just having you know some conversations with some young ladies there, and some guys in the neighborhood didn't like that we were there, and you know I'm on my fake tough guy shit, my fake hardcore shit, so I'm acting like doughboy and boys in the hood, like got my hand under my shirt, what's up, what's up, yo, what's up, cuz, like I don't know what the fuck that means, like what's up, I got a problem, you know what I mean, and they you know, drove off. Then we went to like, I think it was Burger King, McDonald's, I don't remember. I think it was Burger King. So we went to Burger King. As we we're leaving, I see the truck that those guys were in pulling up behind us. And I say, I say my, tell, tell my dude, like, oh, this, um, that's some guys from the neighborhood. And so they pulled up on the side of us. So I'm in the back seat of the car. Dude's talking shit out the window. One of my guys pulled out and shot from the passenger seat. And you know, luckily nobody was in the fourth seat. So it was a driver, passenger, and then somebody was sitting behind the driver with the bullet hit the headrest in the fourth seat behind the passenger seat. You know what I mean? Wow, yeah. All praises due to God. Cause you know, that could have been a, a situation where somebody got killed. Now we all in jail for 20, that, 30 years. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so even now when I think about stuff like that, I'm like, oh. Yeah. You know, because I'm a big Back to the Future guy. You know, you watch those those time heist movies. People go back and little things change here and there and yep. change the whole trajectory of everything. And so, yeah, that was the first time I ever got arrested. Did it change your relationship with your parents? It didn't change my relationship with my parents. It actually made me realize my dad was right. Because mm -hmm. my dad was always telling me, if I don't change my lifestyle, I'm going to end up in jail, dead, or broke sitting under the tree. You know, so when I came home... I really was just looking for positive things to do. Like, you know, I, I, I started working at a, a warehouse called Industrial Acoustics Company. And, you know, from that point on, I wanted to keep a job. But I worked there for like two, three weeks, got fired from there, you know, to, to supervise it. I'll never forget her name. Her name was Gail Cobb. The supervisor was like, you don't fit in here. You're not what we're looking for. Now, mind you, my job was literally like, I was clearing out an area, like a wooded area. So I'm like, well, goddamn, I'm not fit to clean out a wooded area, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But she was like, you don't fit in here. So then I started working at a flower garden just because I was looking to do, you know, something positive. And the flower garden literally, and now that I think back on it, it was literally a bunch of like migrants working there. Like, you know what I mean? It was a, clearly a bunch of people who, you know, weren't from this country who were just looking for work. work. <laughs> now, now, now looking back on it, that's what it was. It was literally just a bunch of, like Mexicans and you know who who knows what else like just working there right wow. and so I I was there for like two weeks never supervisor name was Dominique same thing me and him got into a shouting match because I was just like this shit feels like a fuck it was a plantation yeah, it literally yeah. was a yeah. flower garden it was actually called the, in the uh, south <laughs> yeah it was called the something plantation flower garden but it literally was just we were out there in the hot sun picking flowers and you know other types of shit so I I quit that. And then that's when I started like flirting with the street. You know what I mean? That's when it was like, man, I gotta figure out some ways to make money. Cause you know, I still gotta pay my probation officer and shit like that. And it was just a stupid mentality, right? Cause when you're on probation, you gotta keep a job. That's number one. Um, and you gotta pay your probation fees. So I started just saying that I was working with my dad and I was doing temp services, but also had got a $50 slab. Hmm. $50 slab is when you get $50 worth of rock and you know I think you're supposed to make like I think it's supposed to be a hundred dollars off each gram so 
I think a slab was one gram that you pay fifty dollars for, and you cut it up and you post it. It cuts up into like a hundred dollars worth of rock. So that was the first time I like dabbled in like, yeah, hustling. So yeah, did I, did I let my? Did I feel like? Well, how did my relationship with my parents change? I, yeah, I thought they were right, but I still was young and had to figure things out for myself, that which led me, me, which led me back, which led me into actually hustling. You know. After the break, Charlemagne's going to take us on a ride through his earliest experiences with radio and how that helped build his foundation in the business. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When did radio enter your life? Like, not, on, not as a career, but as a listener. Like, what's your earliest experiences with radio? Like, oh, do you- forever. Forever. And the reason I say forever, because like, like I said, small town, Monk's Corner, South Carolina. So the radio station was Z93 Jams. Mm. We were always around the radio. If it wasn't Z93 Jams, it was another station called WPAL 100.9. And 100.9 was like more underground with it. So they were playing like underground stuff, not the mainstream yeah. stuff. And like, you know, there was always like boom boxes around. Like my cousin, you know, my cousin Ty, salute to my cousin Ty. He, he, he was the first person to let me hear like a real hip hop record. Like prior to that, my sister had her radio in her room. So my sister was listening to like, Kid and Play and Salt and Pepper, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Um, Hammer. All the pop stuff. All the, you know what I mean? Yeah. But my my cousin, let me hear, Eric B. and Rakim paid in full. Wow. And that changed everything. Wow. Like That was like, I don't know what this thing is called hip hop, but I love it. Wow. It felt like Rakim was saying stuff. Like, he was telling stories. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, just... This, that is what introduced me to radio and always wanting to be around a radio. It felt like we might have even have been around radio more than TV, you know, back in the day. TV was certain shows we were watching, but we weren't just turning the TV on and keeping it on all day. If it wasn't like Nintendo or, you know, um, the, the radio, man, we were outside. Yeah, Like, you know right. what I mean? Running right. around, playing around. So it's like for me, radio is always been in my life as a listener like who, who, always who are, who are the personalities because like i know like in la and later i came to realize it was like syndicated but you know in la i always felt like it was like big boy was like was huge you yeah. know and that felt like our guy uh for me growing up it was oh 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 it's the time join a morning show because you know my mom was a yeah. school teacher so yeah. We was up early, early. So I was listening to Tom Joyner. And then, uh, you know, Z93 played such a big role in my life because, you know, their original morning show that I remember was The Breakfast Club, Baby J and Tessa, Tessa Spencer. And then, you know, in the afternoons, it was like um, my man Yanni the Rude Boy. But then it was like, you know, the night shows, the top nine at nine, you know, you want to call in and 
request a song and hear your voice on the radio, shout out your school, whatever, whatever. But yeah, those were the people like growing up, like Sean, people like Sean Dolby, like those are the personalities that I would hear. Reggie C, you'd hear these people and they were just like regular voices that you would hear all the time. Ken Moore, like, I don't even know if Ken was, was Ken on Z? I don't know if Ken was on Z, but I just, these are the voices I remember, yeah. you know, growing up. Like those voices, those local radio voices when you growing up, Absolutely. Are as famous as anyone in the country, in the Absolutely. world, man, right? Absolutely. Do you remember your first time on the radio? I don't remember the very first time, but it definitely one of the first times was uh, uh, my man, Willie Will. There was a guy named Willie Will. He was the night jock there at Z93 Jams in Charleston, South Carolina. Me and him used to rap together. I met him at you know a couple of recording studios that were in Charleston. When I got my internship up there, I would always just be up there and I'd be sitting in on his show. And you know he would definitely you know, call me to the microphone, you know, and I'd be on the mic talking. So definitely my first time on air, I'm sure was with Willie Will in, 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 in some way, shape or form. Cause I remember one of the, I remember the program director telling him like, you know, you need to get a cardboard cut out of Charlemagne and put it in the studio because your energy goes up, you know, when he's in here, you know, with you. I remember, I remember him saying that to him and, um, yeah, which which probably ultimately led to me being on air because my man Ron White, you know, salute to Ron White. Me and Ron still talk to this day. Ron was like, he just asked me one day, like, yo, do you want to be on the radio? And I'm like, sure, why not? And so they started putting me on Sundays, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. When you say sure, like, was there a part of you that had, was that just you playing it cool or were you really not even sure you wanted to be on the radio like that? Yeah, I never had thought about it. You know what really? I mean? I just was really happy to be working at Z93 Jams because it was like the most corporate thing I had ever done. Yeah. You know, it was the it was the place, it was a place where like in South Carolina, people saw you at Z93, they're like, "Oh, you must be he must be doing something." You know what I mean? Yeah, like he yeah. must be doing something with his with his life. Yeah. You know what I mean? And for me being like a guy who was in and out of jail at the time and was getting in a lot of trouble and graduated from high school and night school had gotten kicked out of two high schools like for me that was a big deal for me to be like pulling up in Monk's corner driving this station vehicle like with the big white van with the z93 jams yeah. on the logo you know what i mean pulling it down my dirt road you know what i mean hoping yeah. that some of the girls that lived on my road <laughs> saw me you know what yeah, i mean yeah. like that was a big deal for me uh back then so yeah. Just to be there felt like you, d yeah, you yeah, did yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just was just happy to be there. Like, so when he asked me to be on air, I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. Whatever's going to keep me here. Yeah. And of course, when you think radio, you think on air personalities. You're not thinking promotions or programming or anything like that. So, hell yeah, I'd love to be on air. Now I can really say I work here. Now I'm a personality. And um, yeah, I, I, I really loved it and appreciated it. How was that first show that you had? I was scaring all the church folks because it was what they had me do. They had me do something called voice track. And when you voice track is when you record your voice and you got to record your voice. And, you know, it's like an, it's a time slot from like 11 to three. So you're talking like three, four times an hour, introducing songs, time, temperature, stuff like that. So I didn't know how to do radio. You know, I really didn't. So I was just going in there talking like. Yeah, I was I was actually screaming. When I go back and listen to my old voice tapes, I was screaming. And it's funny because they all were telling me I was screaming. Like, no, I'm not screaming. Y'all just, <laughs> just old. Y'all don't understand how we talk. But I was really yelling like, C93 Jams, R&B and hip hop. I, I go by the name of Charlemagne the God, isn't that? I was yelling, like screaming at people. And so like, you know, when I finally started listening to the people who actually do this for a living, I started to acquire a more conversational tone. You know, but in the beginning, I was just yelling, like yelling, like <laughs> literally yelling at people on the radio. And that's what I was doing. And I did that. I think I might have voice track a few Sundays. And then Ron was like, all right, enough of that. You're going to have your voice track on Saturday nights now, 7 to 10. And then you're going to go live from 10 to midnight. And that was everything because it's Saturday night. So I can have this high energy. But then when we go live, oh, I could take phone calls. Now it's like I'm taking phone calls and I'm fucking with people when they're <laughs> calling in, making jokes, blah, blah, blah. So it's just like for me, I the best thing that ever happened to me was I didn't know how to do radio. Right. Nobody taught me how to do radio. I, I wasn't a person who came from 
you know, doing college radio or nowadays you can have a podcast or a yeah. YouTube page. I was just fresh off the dirt road in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, getting on the air in Charleston, South Carolina on the biggest radio station at the time, Z93. And that rawness showed. I sounded different than everybody else because I didn't have that announcer, you know, yeah. background. So yeah. it worked for me. Yeah, you didn't have that announcer broadcast. That's right. Yeah, pedigree right. or whatever. That's you right. was just coming at it with your own angle. That's right. What was your journey after that, after Z? Mm. So I worked there as an intern in 98, started there in 90, uh, 99 from the promotions department to um, being on air. And then a new station came in the market, Hot 98.9, much smaller station, uh, ran by a guy named um, my man George Cook was the program director. I was doing part-time at Z, so I had some conversations with Hot 98.9. They wanted me to come over there and do nights. They wanted me to do Monday through Saturday, seven to midnight, full-time. And I was, I think the pay was like 19 grand a year. Damn. And at the time, that was a lot of money. And, yeah. and it was a salary. So just to be yeah. able to say- First time on salary, salary. like that. Salary, yeah. I didn't go to college. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I graduated from night school and high, like, so I didn't, this, oh, I got a salary now. You're you know not thinking I mean? about an hourly. Like, how much I'm making nah, an hour? You're like, yeah, nah. this is. I'm just happy to be making 19 grand a year. Like, that yeah. sounded like yeah. some shit. And so, yeah, I started working there every night. And it, it wasn't even about the check, it was about the opportunity to be on every night. And my man, George Cook, man, who's uh, still a great mentor to me to this day, he actually, George is not only the first person to give me a full time position on radio. He told me some information that just changed my whole life. And the information was, I want you to have a morning show at night. I want you to treat this night show that you have like a morning show at night. Parody songs and a lot of sketches and a lot of topics and a lot of interaction with listeners via the phone and you know playing new music. And all of that benefited me so well in the future because that's what I ultimately treated every single show like. I treated every single show like it was a morning show. So yeah. no matter where I went, yeah. from Hot 98.9 to the Big DM in Columbia, then it was Hot 103.9 in Columbia, then it was Wendy Williams show, then it was my own morning show in Philly. By the time I got to my own morning show in Philly, I had approached every single one of those situations like it was a morning show. So by the time I was ready to do my own morning show, I was over-prepared, yeah. you know? So it was, he planted the seed early on that basically stuck with me throughout my whole career and ultimately led to me being the morning guy I am now. When we come back, you'll get a chance to hear what Charlemagne learned from the legendary radio host, Wendy Williams, and lessons he had to teach himself to achieve success. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Tell me about meeting Wendy Williams, man. 
Man, I met Wendy because uh, I was doing radio in Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia had a really dope station called Hot 1039. So Hot 1039 started syndicating Wendy Williams in the afternoons. And so Wendy and her husband would come down for station visits. Like they would come down to like see the market and stuff like that. And so I just would break bread, you know? And I remember the first time I even tried to break bread with Wendy, Wendy was in the studio trying to do her show, which I totally understand now, you know what I mean? But I came in there with mixtapes and parody songs, all of this stuff I wanted her to hear. And while she was doing her show? Yeah, I mean, but she was in between breaks. Oh, right, right. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But now when I under, now understanding the hecticness of a syndicated show, it wasn't like breaks like us, where we break for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and got time to bullshit. Yeah. She's on, like on, 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 on. Like it might have only been like three minutes in between songs. Wendy goes, look, yo, yo, take that mixtape shit out of here. I'm trying to do my fucking show. Take that mixtape shit to my husband. I didn't feel offended by that. Yeah. I was just like, where's your husband? She's like, I think he's, he's in that fucking room somewhere, like in the conference room across the hall. Cool. So I went across the room, gave him the mixtape, started pitching shit to him, you know, <laughs> pitching shit to him. And then we started talking and we, you know, kept in contact from there, you know. And I used to, like, give them the heads up on things that were going on at the station. So he invited me to come up to New York for a party. He was like, yo, why don't you come up to New York? We're having a party, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right. Went to the party just to kick it. And in the party, Wendy was like, oh, shit, Charlemagne. Yo, why don't you come to my show how long you in town? I'm like, oh, just for a couple of days. Come to my show tomorrow. I'm like, come to your show tomorrow. Can't tell me shit like that. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to be like, yo, all right, who do I call? What do I do? Right. And so I'm hitting Kev, like, yo, Kev, when you said come to our show, he was like, all right, all right, bet. So he just told me to, he told me to go up there. Went up there, sat in the pink room, the, pink, the office for a while. Then she invited me on the show. And I was there for like 25 minutes. And literally that evening, they were offering me the position as her co-host sidekick. And they was like, look, we can't pay you, but we can give you a place to stay. And I'm just like, all right, just let me go back down south and like, you know, figure some things out. Like yeah. just, you know, let my girl know what I'm about to do and everything else. And that's what I did. You knew the opportunity. Yo, man, you got to recognize opportunity even when it's not a paycheck attached to it. So my mindset was never, I never, I never once was like, how much I'm gonna get paid? It was like, we cannot pay you, but we can give you a place to stay. I'm out. The opportunity to be on Wendy Williams show, Monday through Friday, in the afternoon, nationally syndicated show. What are some lessons you learned on the Wendy Williams show? That Wendy's a legend. Uh, no, like, matter, no matter how you feel about her, yeah. no matter how you feel about her, bona fide legend, one of the most talented people one of the most talented media personalities of all time. You know, one of the pe few people who can like literally sit down in front of a TV camera and just go. Yeah. Person who could just sit down in front of a microphone and just go. Yeah. And you realize the reason she's able to do that is number one, she ha does have just a natural gift to gab, but one of the lessons I learned is that everything is show prep. Like a lot of times, you know, back in the day, we would think that show prep is like just picking up the latest magazine or picking up the latest tabloid and just downloading what's in there. Wendy taught me that your whole life is show prep. Every single experience that you go through can be bought to the radio. Right. You know, every single experience that you go through can be bought, you know, the television. I would watch her. I'd be out with her during the day, watch these things happen to her and then watch her get on the radio and talk about these things like, oh, I was there. And she, of course she's making me part of the story because and Charlemagne said this yeah. and Charlemagne was right there and Charlemagne acted like he didn't see it. And isn't that like and I'm like, God damn, she's incredible. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like she's just yeah. an incredible storyteller. So you know, um she taught me how to tell stories via radio, even though I was already doing it, but I was doing it more so through sketches. But now just to make your life a story to make yeah. the things that happen to you throughout the day a story. That was like one of the biggest things. Like everything is show prep. And the other thing was like you're either gonna be of the people or of the industry. Because when you're of the people, you're always gonna speak like for the people and you're gonna speak how the people speak. When you're of the industry, like you're gonna try to protect relationships and you're gonna try to, you know, protect people, you know, so you're not gonna have those opinions that you that you probably once had that was good advice at the time 
I think that there's an adjustment to be made in that rhetoric because it's going to come a time where like you're going to be industry. Yeah, you, you get too big. Yeah, yeah, and everybody around you is going to be industry too. I've been in the game for 25 years. So not only have I grown as a personality and a, a businessman, a, 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 a media, just everything, right? Yeah. People around me have too. Now I got people who run record labels. I got people who are A&Rs. I got people who work at these social media platforms. Yep. You know what I mean? I got friends that are artists yep. and big celebrities. We all, I've been doing it for 25 years. We all came up together. And not only just the people I came up with, those next generations of people that now I'm in position, but, oh, I see this person coming. Let me embrace this individual, yep. embrace that individual. So we're all industry. You know what I mean? So your authentic self has to change. It's like reasonable doubt was authentic for Jay-Z in 1996. Yeah. 4-4 is like authentic for Jay-Z yeah. like today, right? Man, like what you just said hit it on the head because people don't pay attention to that. Like you saw me when I was one version of myself. If I had stayed that version and never grown into anything else, it's no way I'm being authentic. Yeah. Muhammad Ali said the person who's doing the same thing at 50 that he was at 20 wasted 30 years of his fucking life. Wow. I believe that. You know what I mean? It's just like you're I'm I'm never going to be that version again. But the only thing I could do is be the best version of my authentic self, whatever that may be, whatever I grow into yeah. you know and like yeah. that's why me at 44 you goddamn right i'm not the same way i was at 31 i better not be yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. i mean i'm my true authentic self right now and yo you realize like the power of the platform and what i mean by that is like man there's just certain things that we got to protect people from because we have these platforms and sometimes the wrong information is spewed over the platform you know and people get hurt because of that, yep. you know? And I'm not in the business of hurting nobody. I don't want to hurt nobody and I don't want the person putting out the information to be hurt, Yeah, you know? So, yeah. Well, that's interesting because, and I don't know if this was necessarily this person being hurt by you, but after Wendy Williams, you get your own show in Philly and you get fired because you bring Beanie Siegel on, who's a, who's a Philly rapper. Yeah. If I, <laughs> tell me if I'm not getting the story right, but you bring on Beanie Siegel, who's a Philly rapper, at one point, was signed to Rockefeller Records, uh, came up under Jay, Jay-Z. And you do an interview with, with Beans on the show, and he, he says something about Jay that makes Jay mad, and you get, get fired. Is that? Yeah, that's the story. The story is that I got fired because Beanie Siegel got on the air and aired out Jay-Z. And I, I, I'm the one who recorded it, and I put it on air. That's the story. I don't know if that's true or not. Jay never has confirmed. Well, no, Jay has. Jay never confirmed or denied on air. Behind the scenes, he has said to me like, "Did I, did I really get you fired?" Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And that's the story, right? I don't. I doubt that's highly the case. You know what I mean? What I think back then, I think um, I had a new program director was hired, and I think that new program director just wanted to bring in his people, and that new program director like. He, I don't know. He had his chest out a little bit. I remember the first time I met him, he was like, "Oh, we, me and you gonna be able to get along." So he came in there on some like yeah. snapping the whip shit. Let me get this guy in line type thing. And I think that um, it was a combination of just him being new and wanting to bring in his own people, but also a combination of people thinking they're doing the right thing for Jay-Z. But Jay-Z's not even thinking about this Jay -Z's shit. Jay-Z's not, a, yeah, yeah, he's you not. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's one of those things like, I, you know, I, I know Charlamagne did this, but we got rid of Charlamagne and you let Jay know I did it, whatever, whatever, you know? Yeah. So I don't, I, I don't know, I do feel like maybe a higher up might have might have just pulled the trigger on that firing just to get in Jay's good graces, but right. I don't think that was a hey, I'm Jay-Z, I'm offended by this, get this guy off the air thing. Right. No, I don't believe that at all. Okay, okay. But that does get you fired. And that was yeah. your own show. I mean, that's like your own show in Philly. That's like and it's yeah. your first time having like your own show that's like Yeah. Um that's that big to that and level. I was killing. I was number I think two in the market. I was number two in the market at the time. And that was in a PPM world. So I was I was doing great. And it was literally just me and my homegirl, Sasha. Sasha, suit to Sasha Katie. That's the homie, you know what I mean? She, uh, we used to work together when I used to work at Wendy at WBLS. And so when I got my own show in Philly, just asked her, yo, you want to be my producer? And she was like, hell yeah. So we literally would drive from New Jersey every morning, back and forth to Pennsylvania, like, like an hour and a half away. We would drive back and forth every day 
three, I have to get up at three in the morning, pick her up by like four, three thirty, four o'clock to be there on time. Wow. And we did that every single day. Wow. For like six, seven months. The funny part is I got fired the day I was supposed to move into the townhouse because I was still living in Jersey. So I, me and my wife uh, had got a townhouse and I'm like, yo, this is going to be great. Now I don't got to wake up so early. Like I won't have to drive. Like I'm in my, that's what I'm, that's, I'm processing yeah. all this in my mind. We were living in Cherry Hill, New Jersey on the outskirts of Philadelphia, going to enroll my daughter in school here, all of that type of shit. And um, the day I got fired, I literally had all my stuff in the fucking, I had a 2002 Escalade with like 150,000 miles on it. And I had all of that in the, in the car. Wow. Ready to move into the townhouse. Wow. And I got fired on that day. Literally that day. And went back to South Carolina. Back in Most Corner for what, a year. What was going through your head at that point? Failure. I had failed. I got to go back to Most Corner after being, you know, on Wendy's show. After having my own show in Philly. After having these viral moments. After being on VH1 TV with Wendy. Now I got to go back to Most Corner and collect unemployment for real, because I don't know when I'm going to get another gig, and now I got a daughter. So I literally was in South Carolina from November 2009 to November 2010. So I was able to collect a year of unemployment. Wow. You know what I mean? I'm living at home with my mom, depressed as shit, you know, anxiety through the roof, just trying to figure out what's going to happen. But, you know, I use that opportunity to... Um, there was a new station launching in South, in Charleston, South Carolina. It was called The Box. I think it was like 92.5 The Box or something like that. So I was there with them helping them launch the station, helping them write promos and creating imaging for the station. I did the voiceovers for the station. Like In my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to end up getting a shift on 92.5. I'm going to make my 20 grand a year here in South Carolina and we're going to live a great life. Yeah. That was my mindset. Yeah. But you know, clearly God had other plans because the breakfast club came shortly after that. How did that come? Um, when I was in Philly, there was a, there was a time where I had met with my man G spin, um, before me and G spin met in a restaurant or something. It was me. And at the time my then, uh, my then manager named, uh, was Kevin, Wendy's husband. And, um, you know, he don't have the best reputation in the business. Yeah. And so even though we met, G-Spin wasn't really feeling it. And then later on, that turned into a meeting with my man Cadillac Jack. And, and Kev was with me then. And it was the same thing. Like, literally, I found out that after we left the meeting, mad people came from, like, the sales department and was like, you cannot, we, Charlemagne's great, but if, as long as, you know, Kevin is his manager, you know, we can't hire him and yada, 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 it'll, the energy will be bad and terrible, all of this type of stuff. I didn't know that. Shit. You know, and then, you know, me and Kevin ended up having a falling out, parting ways. And so I was in New York, because um, I had moved back to South Carolina, but I was in New York for a couple of days. And I remember just texting G-Spin, like, yo, you know, where you at? And he was like, I'm in New York, where you at? I'm like, I'm in Jersey right now. I was staying in Fort Lee. I was, I was at the Doubletree in Fort Lee. And he was like, yo, man, um, he was like, yo, come to the station. I'm like, what? He was like, yeah, yeah, come to the station. Come to the station right now. And so I got in, in the rental car, drove. Seemed it took me like three hours to get there because it was like four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. So we was at the GW Bridge for what seemed like an hour and trying to get down the west side, creeping down to Tribeca. But I finally get there. And G-Spin is like, yo, um, my boss, Cadillac Jack, has been watching your stuff all day long. Watching you and Duval with the Hood State of the Union and listening right. to like some old interviews when you was on the radio in Philly. So I sit down with Cadillac and me and Cadillac just have a great conversation. And one of the first things he says to me is like, you know, is, is Kev still your manager? And I'm like, nah. You know, and that's how the relationship started. So... Like a few months later, I got hired on Power 1051. And I remember Cadillac saying, like, how long can you wait for this job? And I'm like, for this job, as long as it takes. And so like five, six months later, you know, the wheels really started to move. And were you on them that whole five, six months? Like, yo, like, or were oh, you yeah. just, yeah. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just sit back and. No, no, no. Definitely stayed in touch. We yeah. sent him new episodes of me and Duvall show, you know, just, just anything, anything that I was doing in that space. 
I would because I we was early on social media. We was all over MySpace and Twitter and yeah. everything else. So yeah, like I was definitely keeping in real touch with him and G Spin. You know what I mean? And sometimes popping up, popping up, you know, and be like because I, I knew kind of like the gig might be mine. So I was kind of like popping up, and it felt bad because there was like people who I was like really cool with that worked there, and I couldn't say anything, you know, about the conversations me and Cadillac were having, you know right, what I mean? Right. And I, I had to like lie to some of these people and it felt bad, yeah. you know what I mean? Because I, I just couldn't tell the truth because it's business still to be handled, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, that's how I got there. That's amazing, man. And, mm-hmm. then, and then basically from that, I mean, from that point on, you're still there, obviously. Breakfast Club yeah. is... Yeah, 13 years later, man. And what's so interesting is that I any of them will tell you, Angela Yee will tell you, Envy will tell you, our radio consultant, Dennis Clark, G-Spin, Cadillac, I was the guy saying, we're going to be one of the biggest nationally syndicated shows in the country. Like, like I just, yeah. I knew it. I saw what this show had the potential of being. And like from day one, me, Envy, Angela, we always recorded our interviews and put them online. That's how I was aware of what Angela Yee was doing. I was aware of what, you know, Envy was doing, you know. Right. People like my homegirl Kendra G, Debbie Brown, we were all utilizing the internet. Yep. And so when we got with the Breakfast Club, that's all, we, we didn't have no money for marketing. They didn't have no money for marketing, no money for promotions. This was kind of like a last ditch thing to see if something will work to even keep the lights on at Power 1051. And so all we asked for was a cameraman every day to come in here and record you know, these interviews. And that's what we did. We started recording these interviews, putting them up online, recording these interviews, putting them on websites. And then at the time, all these blogs and the world stars and all of these different platforms, these these websites existed, sending our interviews out. They started posting them. Yeah. Next thing you know, it took off in a real way. And here we are. How do, how do you manage that? Like, how do you manage the expectation? How do you manage the success? How do you manage what is just out of reach at the moment that's, that's going to be coming up for you? I manage it just by, like, realizing what my daddy always said. You're never as good as they say you are, and you're never as bad as they say you are. Like, I've already had my moments of, like, ego. I've had my moments of, like, being that narcissistic, arrogant person that, you know, you can't tell anything to. Whether people... Realize that or not, I'm sure that they did because I'm sure I projected it, you know what I mean? But I went through that. And I went through that at a time where, like, God knew I had to get over that in order to be where I am now. So I knew that I had to start doing some work on myself. I was really becoming everything that I said I I, I didn't like, you yeah. know, I was looking in the mirror and really becoming my father. I love my father, but I hated how my father's infidelity ruined my, his marriage with my, my mom, yeah. you know, and ruined our family, right? So for me, I didn't want to do that. And I felt myself going down that path in a real way. So it was just like, Yo, let me check myself before I wreck mm. myself, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, won't let you go, man. Last question. If you could pick out one thing that's helped you be successful, that's sort of been with you through every period of your of your career, what do you think that thing would be? Man. For me, it would like to really be authentic. And what I mean by that is you're not authentic when you're being a caricature yourself. You're not authentic when you see something working for you and you're getting rewarded for it. So you start doubling and tripling down on that thing. You're not authentic when you're being a second rate version of somebody else instead of a first rate version of yourself. And one of the things that hurt me the most is when they started calling me the hip hop Howard Stern. I love Howard Stern, right? But I didn't even stop to think why they were calling me that. I just took it and ran with it, you know? And started giving them like uh, all of the examples of Howard that Howard might not even be proud of now. Yeah. You know, for me, it was like a lot of the, the, the frat boy, creepy ass, overly sexual humor. Yeah. You know, like I, the low vibrational uh-huh. energy is what I was really doing the limbo with. How yeah. low can you go? You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like literally, <laughs> like how low Never can you go? Like yeah. literally. 
And uh, that's the type of shit I was doing. So like when you go online and you see like videos of me like sniffing chairs or like tying porn stars up and all of that, it was literally for the shock. Yeah. And so like that stuck with me for like, man, maybe, maybe a year or two I was on that. And then just started to eat me up. Like, yo, this ain't making me happy. This shit is whack. Then you got your, you know, your wife, you know, I, I got married in 2014. So you got your wife on your head. At the time, she's my girl. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, you out here wilding, you cheating on, you know what I mean? And you, you're on the radio and you're yeah. damn near Jets. bragging about, word is born. Like, <laughs> it was that type of conversation. Yeah. I'm like, man, are you tripping? Like, you know, you, it's just entertainment. That was my line. It's just entertainment, but it's not. Yeah. It's really not, you yeah. know, because number one, you're influencing mad people. And in this case, I'm hurting somebody. I'm hurting the person that's, the closest to me and you can start to believe your own bullshit mm. that's the worst when you get in the character and you start believing that you really are this dude so it's like for me man that's what made me like really start like going to therapy and like doing the work because i did not like the version of myself that i was becoming so my advice to anybody would just to just be authentic Always leave yourself open to growth and don't be afraid of where that growth takes you. I don't give a fuck what people like about you today. If you're growing into something else tomorrow, follow that shit. Mm. You know what I mean? Because if you don't, you know, you're, you're really just stunting your growth and you really don't know how big you could possibly be. You're putting a cap on you. Like you're literally putting a, a limit on how far you could possibly grow, how big you could get, because you're like, nope, this is what they like about me, so I'm gonna keep it here. As opposed to just leaving yourself open to see what else is out there and how much more you could continue to grow. So that's what I tell people, be authentic, man, and just don't be afraid to grow. Yeah, yeah. Man, thanks for bringing your authentic self to everything, man. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate you, brother. It. Thanks, man. Appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you. Charlemagne, through the ups and downs of building a media career in one of the most cutthroat of mediums, radio, has shown up ready to bring his full self to whatever it is he does. And the brilliance of that is he's been impossible to ignore. I want to thank him for that confidence and for taking the time to talk with me. I plan on spending more time working on my fear of being rejected just for being me. Thanks for listening to Started From The Bottom. I'm out. Started from the Bottom is produced by David Ja, edited by Keisha Williams, engineered by Ben Tolliday, booked by Laura Morgan, with production help from Leah Rose. The show is executive produced by Jacob Goldstein, who's not all up in the videos for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Ben Tolliday and David Ja, featuring Anthony Ags and Savannah Joe Lack. Listen to Started from the Bottom wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want ad-free episodes available one week early, sign up for Pushkin Plus. Check out pushkin.fm or the Apple Show page for more information. If you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. I'm Justin Richmond.